You're listening to Sherd's Podcast, a journey through the outskirts of literature. As if it had come in out of the fog, the ship became suddenly visible. The bow was broad, yellow-brown and pitch-jointed. The masts were perfectly aligned. So were the projecting yardarms and the network of shrouds and rigging. The red sails were furled and roped to the yards. Two small tugs, attached to the ship by tow lines fore and aft, brought her alongside the quay. That was the opening paragraph of Hans Henny Jans' The Ship, which was originally published in German in 1949. The English version is translated by Catherine Hutter and is published by Peter Owen Books. The book concerns the fate of a strange wooden ship with blood-red sails, which embarks upon an unknown mission, carrying an unknown cargo, a mystery to both captain and crew, perhaps known only to the shady figure of the supercargo as well as the ship owner, whose presence is as uncertain as the contents of the boxes in the ship's hold. The captain, Valdemar Strunk, has a daughter, Elena, who follows him on this voyage, while Gustav, her fiancé, takes himself aboard as a stowaway in order not to be separated from his beloved. In the middle of the ship's journey, Elena disappears, and in the search for her, Gustav must confront the very fabric of reality. Join us over the next hour while we give our thoughts and impressions of this peculiar, genre-defying text. We hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to episode 10 of Shared Podcast. My name's Sam Pullum. I'm here with Rob Prowse. How are you doing, man? Yeah, great, thanks. Episode 10, I didn't realise we were so far in. That's amazing. Know, quite an achievement. As we're recording, it's the, the middle of the World Cup England have just qualified for the for the semi-finals. Do you care to make a prediction, Rob, uh, about this? Because it may come out after we... Uh, I may publish this after the uh, oh, yeah, finals. Oh, yeah, it almost so, certainly yeah. will. I think we'll win the next match against Croatia, perhaps rather scrappily, and then we'll go into the final against Belgium, where we'll lose heroically, but possibly actually quite badly. I'm not sure we've played any good teams yet. So, yeah, that's my prediction. Okay. That's pretty specific. That's good punditry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we're talking today about Hans Henny Jan's The Ship, which was published in 1949. I don't even think we need to say this, Rob, but, yeah, a strange one, right? How did you feel about reading this one? Yeah, certainly, certainly very strange. I mean, once again, really, really enjoyed it. But, yeah, I I couldn't quite decide if I thought it was very strange that it had just kind of completely fallen away from popular imagination or made total sense yeah i don't know it's a it's a really enjoyable read but it's not quite like anything i've ever ever read before it is very difficult to compare to anything it, it almost seems to intentionally set itself apart by you know all taking place on this very isolated and strange ship you might even see that as a metaphor for its uh, its place in literature somehow i think there is a slight resurgence in interest in in his work but in english i think this is the only full novel that's available in translation and uh, even this has been out of print for quite a long time i think it was translated in 1970 or oh no it's 19 it's 1961 but i think it's been out of print for a long time and is now available in this i don't know it looks like a print on demand version rob yeah it definitely is print on demand it's a peter owen edition they haven't exactly gone to town on the cover have they rob (laughs) 
it's it's about as pared down as it's possible to be. Yeah, it's, um, no ex no expense spared on this one. <laughs> it doesn't even have his full name on there. It's just got his surname. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. And it's in such small type as well. Yeah, like it's just this block of green. It's a very odd thing. I don't, I don't know about you, but if it were up to me, all books would look a bit like this. I mean, maybe not in this sort of cheap paperback version but just absolutely plain covers the name of the book the name of the author that's it preferably in just black and white i would love that that'd be perfect for me (laughs) like like the new cigarette covers to stop people getting addicted to them exactly yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) i'm not sure you need to apply the same motivations for this book but yeah having said that i did really enjoy it actually i found it a really atmospheric book unfortunately because i had a lot of stuff to do while i was reading this i wasn't able to read it very quickly i I read it a bit of a snail's pace but every time i picked it up i I I found myself plunged into this era atmosphere and i think a lot of that comes from the the setting of the ship itself it's it's all set aboard this quite ornate wooden ship with red sails the german title of the book das holzschiff actually means the the wooden ship just to interject yeah. it's, it's a weird decision is it to just change the title for the english there seems absolutely no reason why why that would have happened i can't really quite understand why that was done because it also seems quite important to the book that the ship itself is this anachronistic thing mm. At the time, it's being sailed. You know, it's mentioned at the beginning of the book somewhere that, yeah, it's uh, almost a vanity project. Yeah, that's right. And so it's strange. It's strange to us, but actually it's even strange to the sailors sailing it at the time. It's, um, yeah, it's a weird one. Yeah, it does kind of really accentuate the way that it seems to come out of nowhere and to be going nowhere and to be outside of time as well somehow. But did, did you enjoy the just the story of this book, Rob? I mean, I found it quite compelling almost as a, a mystery novel. You know, there's this central mystery that held me continually in suspense. I found it quite enjoyable just just for that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think for all its strangeness and all the kind of quirks that we'll talk about a bit later, I thought actually it's paced really well. And there's there's passages which are a bit slower to read and, and become perhaps even slightly stodgy, but they're lightened often with really incredible bits of prose. And, and yeah, this, this mystery that runs through it actually holds the whole thing together quite tightly. You mentioned that sort of changing in style a little bit it it has a really strange mixture of very workmanlike prose or quite kind of expository dialogue and then suddenly you'll be in a very prolix dense philosophical sort of tone that raises the register to being almost borderline impenetrable is kind of becomes very arcane at points doesn't it yeah absolutely i mean it's sort of I don't know, it reminds me of like a German idealist Melville or something where the, yeah. <laughs> you know, these incredibly engaging scenes of this storm, which is thrashing the ship. The prose is so, I mean, violent, I suppose, at times and very easy to read. And then exactly as you say, it then it then descends into the um, psychological depths of a character sitting, <laughs> sitting down below as, as the boat's being tossed about. Yeah, it's, a, it's odd. And there's, there's almost a uh, kind of intentional disorientation going on in the prose, I think, in that sense. You feel sort of buffeted by the prose in this book, as, just as the ship is, you know, in the, in the midst of this stormy sea. I, I did find myself thinking, what's going on? at times questioning uh, you know have i missed something in the in the plot what what is what is the main character gustav so upset about i can't quite catch it um and i found myself sort of going back to reread passages quite often so yeah it is slightly challenging in in that sense it's also quite funny and lighter in tone than i was really expecting because you know in the introductions Catherine hutter the, the translator she speaks of jan's apocalyptic visions or there's this of this book as a kind of apocalyptic vision so i wasn't expecting the levity that you can find in this book either i mean obviously it's, it's rather dark in tone it has to be said overall but there are moments of uh, relief i think as well yeah definitely and it feels also like Jan has an awful lot of respect for all of his characters, you know, whether they be the the working men on the ship or the uh, extremely, almost uh, madly idealistic Gustav. You know, none of them are put in there as as caricatures. They're all properly fleshed out and um, given a certain hearing. So, yeah, I, I found the idea of it being apocalyptic in that sense, perhaps a bit wider the mark. 
I don't know. I suppose she's thinking of at least the final moments we might read like that. I won't divulge anything just yet, but um, you could read this as some kind of nihilistic vision. But yeah, talking about the characters, I love some of the names in here, particularly the name of the captain, Valdemar Strunk. (laughs) which I think is one of the best character names <laughs> uh, I've read in any novel. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a shame because he's one, perhaps the plainest, dullest character in the whole thing. He doesn't really seem to have any, any character at all, but he certainly has the most outlandish name. So, yeah, Jan is born in 1894 in Hamburg, and he's the son of a, a shipbuilder, actually, which might give us some clue as to his interest and expertise in this, this subject in, in the ship. I was reading about him as a young man. He seems to have been quite a peculiar child. There was an article by Richard Detch, and I found this curious description of Jan as a young man. Actually, that, that article I'll, I'll refer to quite a bit during the biography. I put a note in the bibliography. So Detch writes, As an adolescent, he indulged himself in excesses and oddities which made him appear as an eccentric to his comrades. An example of such activities are the wounds he inflicted upon himself and his self-asphyxiation with chloroform in order to determine whether his sensitivity to pain or his consciousness would fade first which is quite a kind of shocking detail about a, a child, I think, or even an adolescent. And in in general, it, it seems that one of the reasons for perhaps the fact that Jan doesn't really occupy a, a position in the main, in mainstream literature is is his fascination with some, some of these sort of taboo, dark subjects, such as necrophilia, which I think comes up over and over again throughout his work. But yeah, so after graduating from school in 1911, he takes up an apprenticeship as an organ builder. And quite interestingly, even now, he seems to be almost better known among the general public as an organ builder and a music publisher than he is as a writer. I think I was telling you I came across this interesting documentary about him it's it seems to be from german television maybe in the 80s or maybe in the 70s in which uh, a television crew goes out onto a, a street named after hans henny jan and asks the residents of that street if they know who who he was and most of them answer that he was an an organ builder and they had no idea that he ever wrote anything um I include a, a short clip of it. But th- yeah, there's one guy that knows, but most of them just say, hmm, uh, yeah, he was an organ builder. So you get a kind of idea of how quickly he fell out of the, the public consciousness, even after having won one of the most prestigious prizes in German literature very early in his career, the, the Kleist Prize, which he won uh, in 1920 for a play called Pastor Ephraim Magnus. Wer also war Hans Henny Jan? Und wie steht es mit der Bekanntschaft seines Werkes? Da sind Sie Anwohner des hans hene jan wegs ja, ja. Können Sie mir sagen, wer hans hene jan war? Oi, Moment. Ein Orgelbauer, ne? Ja, ja, stimmt. Ja. Er war auch Schriftsteller. Das weiß ich nicht. Nein, das weiß ich nicht. Ich bin hier erst eingezogen. Ich wohne hier noch nicht lange. Jan, Tonvater Jan. Ich glaube, ähm, Orgelbauer, sowas, und Komponist so in der Art. Da bin ich sehr dafür, für Orgelbauer. Ich spiele selbst eine Orgel. Dann sind die Jahre, wie gesagt, dicht aus Adelstich. Aus, äh, aus, äh, oben bei Harnbeck da her. Haben Sie von ihm mal etwas gelesen? Doch, das habe ich. Er ist nach Heimatdichter. Er hat viel geschrieben über so kleine Verse gemacht, ne? Do you have any thoughts as to why, after having read this particular book, Rob, why he might be slightly neglected? I don't really know. I guess with these things, sometimes it can just be odd bits of fortune where something goes out of print and then, for whatever reason, it never gets picked up again and then that's it. Do you know much about translations into other languages? No, actually. Yeah, I haven't really looked into that. I mean, obviously, I think most of his work is available in in German and I got a German biography about him and there's quite a lot of secondary material, even things being published quite recently about about his life and work. But no, I didn't look into 
translations into other languages at all. But it's certainly lacking in English. You know, I don't think this is going to be a, a bestseller or um, flying off the shelves of Waterstones. No. But, um, <laughs> but it is weird that, you know, the only copy you can get is this very really weird print-on-demand that comes to you from Amazon. Yeah, I suppose I'm asking, because of this reputation that he has, I mean, did you notice there's almost a kind of perversion to the book at times you know little little details that slip through i'm not suggesting that, that this is something the author couldn't control or anything but there is a kind of prurience to some of the the characters i think that might have been quite shocking at the t- time of its publication i don't know yeah it's really it's really hard to know how it would have been received especially knowing some of the details of his life which are which seem far more controversial than anything that perhaps happens in the book. Mm. Perhaps there are biographical details that are the reason why, you know, if he wasn't quite as successful as he should have been. Are you thinking of his homosexuality, his pacifism and so on? Yeah, exactly. Oh, so maybe I should say, well, he, yeah, he regarded himself as a pacifist throughout his life in 1915 in order to avoid conscription during the First World War. He emigrated to Norway with a friend and lover, I think, Gottlieb Harms, whom he'd met at school and I think who became the love of his life. And of this time in Norway, he later said, During this time I learned to live. I saw through the world and everything life consists of. It was a hard school. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm translating there. You might translate that slightly differently, but I don't know exactly what happened there. I, tr- I tried to read about it a little bit. But to me, it struck me as quite a thing to say, given that many young men of his age were, were fighting a war during those years. Um, <laughs> as, as far as I could find out, he lived on the Auerlands Fjord and devoted himself to the study of music and architecture, which, which sounds pretty idyllic to me, than, you know, yeah. rather than fighting in a trench. I knew he was a pacifist, but I didn't, I didn't know that he'd had this time in Denmark. Uh, Norway. Sorry, in, in Norway. Same shit, right? <laughs> it's, it's the same thing, yeah. Yeah, he actually, he he left Germany for both world wars and uh, I think actually did go to, to Denmark much later during the Second World War. After the end of the war, he comes back to Germany and, and devotes himself to the renovation of old church organs. And later in life, he, he, he would restore a number of quite famous organs in Germany, uh, particularly around northern Germany, I think, including the Jakobikirche in Hamburg, on which Bach had, had apparently played. And it's around this time that he founds a very strange organisation. Did you read about this, Rob, called Ugrino? Yeah, 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 yeah. It seems to be a, a mixture between a religious organisation and a music publisher. In that article I quoted from before, Detsch also writes of this project, that shrines were to be established throughout the world in which music would be venerated and around which burial places, theatres, workshops and schools would be built. The utopian scheme soon ended in bankruptcy. And it does seem like this quite lofty ambition, particularly straight after a a war of that sort. And I think this all seems to be tied up with Jan's theories and fascination with the organ as a a pagan instrument. And he had this idea that it was quite bound up with his interest in primitive architecture, including the pyramids, that some kind of future utopian society could be built according to these principles. And it it all seems to have culminated in that organisation, but it fell through. I read that the name of that organisation had its roots in in something from his school time that he'd written perhaps something about a fictional republic but then it seems to be this thing that he recycles you know that he really really holds on to I found it very interesting that it's something which he's kind of developed in childhood or early adolescence and then it continues throughout his whole life. It certainly strikes me that says something perhaps very fundamental about his character, that he certainly holds these very strong convictions. And yeah, for sure, the interest in this kind of very strange power of uh, of pagan spirituality really is so present in the book. In 1933, he, he flees Germany again and spends the war years actually in Denmark on this Danish island of Bornholm in the Baltic Sea where apparently he becomes a specialist in breeding horses and cultivating grain. When the war ends he he returns to Hamburg um, for the remainder of his life. He dies in 1959 and really interestingly Rob I, I thought much like the curious specifications of the the ship in the the novel we're talking about he has his coffin made to very precise specifications it's sealed with wax it's a wooden coffin 
just like this this ship and it's lined with metal apparently it was so heavy that the pallbearers had to lay it down after every three steps in order to carry it to the grave isn't that quite strikingly similar to this ship yeah absolutely i mean hearing this about his um biography sort of he strikes me almost as like a joseph boyce type character in the, do you know? Do you know the No, artist, tell me about artist? him. Um, well, he's just, I guess, very famous for this kind of self mythologizing. There's a story that he propagates, and I, I think it's untrue, but I'm not sure that he was a fighter pilot shot down, and he survives by. I might be getting some of the details wrong. He survives by wrapping himself in in wool and covering himself in fat, and then as a conceptual artist, performance artist, so much of his work brings in these these materials so fat and wool there's a lot of metal i think copper and these these materials are imbued with this incredible almost pagan mystic energy which um which really transforms them from the kind of like base materials into into something entirely different hearing this about the coffin really really reminds me of that uh yarn this is, seems to have fascinating relationship with materials where they i assume as a um, very technical practical person in his work restoring organs he must have had a real feel for these materials as materials but then yeah exactly as you say the idea of organ as pagan instrument it seems like for him they actually mean an awful lot more as well and this i think is so present in the book the greater meaning of of materials this imbuing of you know the very way that, that an object is engineered with a very particular meaning or, or symbolism, I think it's definitely in there. It doesn't seem bombastic exactly. It seems like a very determined or thought out, you know, for lack of a better word, engineered transport into the afterlife somehow. There seems to be a kind of spiritual significance to that as well. And, and certainly something very attuned to the power of ritual. The insistence on the, on the wax and the wood imbues those materials with an importance that obviously on their own they don't have. And the, the metal and the, the weight <laughs> literally adds weight to the to the whole procedure yeah yeah so adds adds definitely this this ritualistic weight to it as well this book we're reading the ship it forms the first part of a trilogy i think an incomplete trilogy called in in german fluss ohne ufer which means a river without without a shore or without shores i'd really like to see more of his work translated in into english i mean you know i might try to tackle the next part in in german but i think it would present quite a challenge for me given the density of this of this prose you know it's quite interesting i don't know if you read about the second part of this trilogy which kind of continues the story and this might be what you're about to say that that some of the kind of mystery of this book is is explained yes that's right to yeah. me um i don't know if you're about to say exactly this but to me it made me think i don't i don't want to read it because the the beauty seems to be in this um in what's unexplained and yeah what's what's kind of left to the imagination i agree with that 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 is part of the fascination for me with this with this book but it does seem to take a quite a strange turn you know apparently it's um it seems to have an almost picaresque quality Two of the characters from the ship actually go on various adventures together, and there's a sexual undercurrent between the two of them. I won't reveal precisely what we're talking about. Gustav stuck to his story. He had not been anywhere near Elena. The next few seconds brought with them the cruel end of a long uncertainty. A human being feels his way through a dark tunnel. Here and there his hands grasp the uneven stones, his feet stumble over rocks. He bends low because he is afraid he will hit his head. The darkness of granite differs not at all from the darkness of an unlighted room, so a wanderer can feel hemmed in even in a vast cavern. The wreckage of a petrified night towers above him. But suddenly, far away, Light penetrates through a crack. He who was blind a moment ago hurries towards it, his heart pounding with jubilation in his breast. Freedom, the visibility of things, is beckoning to him. Breathless, he steps out into a landscape, and it is as if he were enjoying the sun for the first time. The earth smells spicy of grass and wood, of acrid smoke, of minerals, because a ball of fire is bestowing its warmth. 
animals at the wanderer's feet farther away, insects, field mice, two hopping rabbits, near a hill, massive horses harnessed to a plough, all coaxed out of a warm oven, all born of a living mother, nothing that can offend the eye or frighten him. Then suddenly, like a single violet flash of lightning, the firmament is torn to shreds. Blackness screams out of the breach. Outer space with its infinite cold comes rolling in relentlessly. The sea of light dries up. The soul falls off the earth and sees death. we discussed at the beginning this this wooden ship i guess it's something maybe that's slightly lost on us it's quite difficult to comprehend but at the time it was still in the era of ships but we are in the era of steamships and so for this this wooden ship to come along with these uh, these dark red sails the whole thing is very unusual and perceived by those who see her for the first time as, as a as a vanity project a thing of absolute beauty but really unnecessary as soon as i found out this thing about jan as this restorer of baroque organs i couldn't help think that that's exact you know the mindset that he must have brought to that work feels exactly the same as the the mindset that he brings to the ship would it be fair to say that the ship is baroque <laughs> so no i think that's a really nice way to describe it and in some ways the style of this book as well is a bit like that should we should we read the description of the ship yeah 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 have you got it to hand yeah so the ship is described as a a full rigged vessel with three masts several thousand square yards of sail canvas old lionel escott mcphee esquire of hepburn on tyne had built her of teak and oak, a strange fellow, a man who really belonged to another century, but a genius at shipbuilding. With the help of a few charts and gigantic curved rulers which he carved himself, he had sketched the ribs on thick white paper, and one construction developed out of another in an exemplary way. While he was at his work, his tongue showed between his teeth a little, and he would squint at what he was doing critically, and make marks which were highly decorative, where copper rivets were to be driven in, or a plank had to be tapered or mortised to another. The competent gentlemen knew all about it. According to them... It was obvious that here was keel construction of unparalleled artistry. The heavy timbers, which still looked like the trunks of trees, were wedged into one another, closely scarfed, riveted together almost without seams, with projecting stays to accommodate the curved wood of the ribs. There almost seems to be something gothic about this construction, don't you think? The wood is described as almost still looking like trees, you know, this introduction of natural forms into the shape of it. The way that the ship holds its own in the storm i felt again was was certainly a kind of gothic passage in the way that it's built seemingly perfectly with nature in mind and i would agree with your with your description of uh, valdemar strunk as um perhaps the least interesting character that we meet but there is that moment where um perhaps slightly like ahab he is absolutely in his element when the ship is um, kind of riding out the storm and it's it's absolutely at one with the the sea in this in this passage the storm which i i find really beautiful and i'm sure we'll return to great chapter isn't it yeah really really is he's talking about the ship and says the ship's expression of rebellion were not spasms of weakness but rather eruption of rigid laws the sounds that we as a reader and i imagine gustav who is on board as a non-sailor non-specialist actually very green in all respects seemingly must have heard the the creaking and the howling of the wind and felt that perhaps the ship was about to go down whereas Valdemar Strunk realizes that actually this is um, the ship doing exactly what it should do and yeah it feels completely natural I think you mentioned it earlier as well the uh, the point where the the ship feels like a a living thing is is really interesting rather than thinking of the ship as a living thing i'd r- rather think of it as something that almost seems to be in constant fluctuation uh, rooms that were not seen before appear or little hatchways or entrances we're told that they've been built into the ship's design or you know that this eccentric ship builder has constructed it in such a way that there are lots of these 
hidden passageways and so on but as far as the experience of the characters goes the ship is constantly changing shape and becoming more and more labyrinthine and mysterious the moment that gustav enters the the ship with, without permission as as a stowaway he hides in one of the lower decks of the ship and we see this dark uncertain half-viewed figure who may be the the ship owner passing through this lower deck into one of the side walls that wasn't visible and so it has this almost tardis like quality it seems larger on the the inside than it is on the outside somehow but as far as it being a kind of living breathing entity entity i didn't see it quite that way because of the insistence on on the engineering behind it which maybe ties into this interplay between rationality and irrationality that we might talk about i didn't quite mean alive i suppose well I did, but perhaps not in the sense that it had agency or um, perform actions, but that it was alive in the sense of a body, in the way that to the outside observer, you know, a body is is a whole and you know this unified thing, but is in fact a, a multitude of organs. And actually, perhaps you know, Sam, whether there's the same play on words between the word organ as the instrument and the organ as organ of the body. Does that exist in German or is that just a quirk here? Well, organ in German is orgel. And I mean, obviously, organism as in body exists. Yeah, I mean, there's the word Körperteil uh, for organ. But yeah, organ also seems to exist as well. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't made that connection. Well, now I think, you know, perhaps this is, is incidental, but I but I really felt that there was something about discovering the kind of innards or the, the guts of the ship. The horror that comes in, the realisation that this uh, this ship has uh, inner, inner compartments and um, inner organs, really. There's a really beautiful extended passage, I don't know if you mind if I read it, on page 32 of, of this version that we've got. So yeah, at this uh, at this point where Elena and Gustav realise that there are walls missing and secret compartments and doors that don't lock and and basically that the the internal workings of this ship aren't far more complex than they they realize so in anger gustav kicks elena's suitcase and it completely disappears and they realize there's no wall it just has gone flying into this kind of cavity and it's written the wall has to be there. And then it moves into this passage immediately afterwards in the following paragraph where it says, We have witnessed the horrible again and again, a transformation no one could foresee. A healthy body is run over by a truck, crushed. Blood, once secreted, once feeling its way blindly through the body, pulsating in a meshwork of thin streams, spreading the chemically charged hormones and their mysterious function like a red tree inside a man. This blood now runs out shapelessly in great puddles. And still no one grasps that, in a network of veins, it had form. But even more horrible, the death struggle itself, in which the innumerable organs, which we believe we feel, take part. Terror is stronger in us than delight. And then it moves seamlessly back into the, the narrative, you know, straight back into Ella, you know, Elena bends down and they find that. And for me, this is suddenly talking about the, the point where the realisation that the body isn't, isn't this kind of inviable whole it's um, actually made up of this intricate network of uh, you know veins and organs and all this thing this this for me is is kind of what's going on in the ship so i suppose that was really what i was had in mind when i was thinking about it being alive that's that's really fascinating actually uh particularly where it comes that it's it's a sort of strange interjection at that moment isn't it i don't know these these kinds of interjections tend to come when there's doubt of some kind this incident you're talking about where the suitcase is pushed under the bed and and kind of disappears comes just after this problem with the door that is it that it won't open from the inside i can't i can't recall Rob. i think yeah. it's that it won't it won't lock they lock the door but then it can just be opened and it turns out there's some some central or they think perhaps there's some central control mechanism before the sort of scientific or you know engineering reason for that problem is kind of described all sorts of strange flights of fancy are, are followed you know the idea that there, there might be a ghost or there's something supernatural going on here when it turns out that there is this 
very straightforward scientific explanation for it it's really pleasing to gustav's kind of initially rational turn of mind you know he it says uh, the beginning of chapter three and so the established order of things did not stand in opposition <laughs> to what had been experienced conventional and self-evident laws had not been annulled and an imposing technical display had made a significant thing of the principle of utility um, <laughs> and i think that's that's something that we see throughout the book this kind of tension be between perhaps the supernatural or the inexplicable and you know the rational explanation for it coming to the rescue and when it won't over and over again when when there is no way of explaining at least not empirically some of the strange happenings aboard this ship that's what seems to lead to gustav's deterioration or his becoming frantic and and wild and his uh, pursuit of elena's body after her disappearance and so on i found it interesting because i i sort of felt that actually jan doesn't really come down on either side and perhaps is just suggesting that these two things are completely coexistent because i think there is perhaps you know if you if you go back through and tick off all of the incidents that happen in the book you could potentially say there's an answer for all of for all of this you know it's that you could potentially say you know nothing nothing extraordinary nothing supernatural has happened the disappearance of elena is is the the one thing that remains unsolved mm. but then and the uh, the presence of the the ship owner as well. Ah, uh, yes, that's very true. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, the disappearance and this this hidden figure, but they're not completely inexplicable. There could be. It's not ruled out. You know, this isn't a completely occult situation where the only possible solution is is something beyond rational. But what Jan does, I think, so well is is show how actually that's relatively unimportant if these things can be explained because the supernatural or the um, pagan or the mystical side of things have very very real and very powerful outbreaks in the ship and that's completely undeniable just as much as this obsession that Gustav has with the the candle that's held in the gimbals that sways with the movement of the ship just as much as that shows that there are laws of nature involved the the actions of the crew show that there are there are other laws whether they be human nature whether it be something deeper and and more spiritual which we equally can't be argued with that's really interesting particularly the fact that he doesn't come down on on either side that's also carried through in some of the other things that the novel is doing you, you could see it as a kind of truncated or distorted mystery novel precisely because of because of the fact that the solution to the mystery is never revealed and as we might see gustav for example going through a sort of pedagogical or moral sort of lesson you know having to confront the, the possibility of the irrational and just trying to apply rational laws to it that's kind of left open as well like you like you say so i mean you mentioned the magic mountain to me and it sort of got got me thinking about the idea of this book as a as a very strange kind of bildungsroman you know i was kind of thinking of these parallels between the magic mountain and this book you know in the fact that gustav ends up aboard this ship for impulsive reasons you know he doesn't just decide to to come aboard he very quickly becomes a stowaway not even having packed any baggages or any baggage or anything like that and reminded me of the way that hans kastorf in the magic mountain is is not exactly there against his will he's not in this sanatorium against his will but but once he's there he finds it very very difficult to to leave and he's almost entering a kind of fairy tale land and one in which he has to sort of grow and mature guided by these two different uh perhaps symbolic figures setembrini and um What's the other guy's name? Can you remember? I can't remember. Yeah, I always remember Setembrini's name and then... Um... God, Na Nafta? Oh, yeah, Nafta, yeah. Isn't, is it Nafta? It is, yeah, it is Nafta. Yes, uh, Setembrini and, and Nafta, and he's sort of guided in almost opposing directions by these by these two figures. And it seems that he has to do something quite quite similar in, in this book. And it's not like he has these mentors in precisely the same way but he is forced to confront his his own naivety and his own allegiance to to rationality in a similar way i think i was also thinking of, of him as a part of a kind of lineage of these sorts of characters in in german literature and thinking about uh, nathaniel in the sandman 
who becomes more and more manic, just like Gustav does in, in this book. But in the case of the Sandman, it's the outside world that is trying to impose a rational worldview of upon him which he can't really make fit to the world as he experiences it i don't know we might see both both of those figures hans kastorp and um nathaniel in in gustav and his his sort of progress throughout the book the reason why i might be tempted to say that jan does come down on on one side in particular is precisely the fact that it is gustav's sort of incessant rationalizing his burning need to have an answer that leads to the the grave events of the end of the book but is there also uh, i because i felt that the the involvement of the crew in that was extremely ritualistic it's interesting that the carpenter is stripped during that, that yes. passage as well, isn't it? It's actually when they first go to the hold, when it turns out to be the false hold, Jan writes that all the men have uh, have washed themselves, freshly shaved themselves for this for this occasion, even though there is no way they could have known that Gustav was going to find the door to the hold open and this trap that's been laid by the supercargo. But yeah, there seems to be an extremely ritualistic thing to it. And I didn't know if you noticed in the, in the boat, so after the ship has already gone, in the boat it talks about the men having daubed their faces in black, you know, some black paint or some kind of black polish or whatever, which I know is a, a very common element of like folk ritual. Oh, yes, I didn't notice that. That's interesting. On the very last page, it's actually in the, in the last paragraph, when it says, the boats drifted apart, wreckage from the ship rocked in the swell. Behind their tar-smeared foreheads occurred the thought of killing the grey man, let him go down with his cargo. Now, it could be that, you know, this is the work that they've done to, to try and save the ship, and, you know, this could be my poor knowledge of, uh, of the life of a seaman. There could have been a lot of tar around everywhere, but <laughs> I also felt there was some kind of, like, a ritual element to have these, these kind of, like, marks or strange things on their foreheads. But actually, this is, this is the passage I was thinking about, not the other one. The ship at this point is going down. It says, without anyone having called them, six men were suddenly there. They seemed to have oozed in out of the cracks of the ship. Their faces were black with soot or paint. I mean, exactly what we were just saying. There's side by side the rational explanation saying, okay, these men have soot on their face for whatever reason. Or there's this um, more ritualistic explanation of the men have painted their faces black. Uh, as as part of some the element of some ritual as the ship's going down, you know whether that gives them protection or or is part of something else. That idea of them having oozed in out of the cracks of the yeah. ship uh, is quite sort of spectral somehow, isn't it as well? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I really felt like the um, the end point was perhaps there's something that Jan's saying, and you know this this for me is such a big part of the book. This constant tension between what's hidden and what's revealed and and that's very much i think part of what we were just talking about with the ship as a as a body having its kind of like whole outside and then it's incredibly mysterious almost horrific inside the actually the the drive to reveal what is inside and what is hidden is present in both rationality and in mystical religion the idea of the initiation you know the mysteries that you can progress as you become further enmeshed in any religion or any any ritual mysteries will be slowly revealed to you and you'll have a greater understanding that you know the the drive is actually the same Mm. and that for me the point the point where they're looking for elena and they bring about their downfall they you know they kind of go into the very heart of the ship and it's flooded. Whether that's Jan's warning that actually both elements, both the rational and, and the uh, ritualistic, can go too far in their search for this, this kernel of truth or whatever it might be. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not too sure if I would go so far. I don't know. But it did, it, I, I did feel that there was a parallel drive in, in those two different elements. The moment came when the walls of the forecastle were transformed and became mirrors, broad landscapes of glass that caught everyone's likeness. But they were not flat, glittering mirrors in which the men saw their own faces, their bodies dressed at first, then naked, finally transparent. The space beyond began to show. And that was how it began. 
that they saw the tentative shreds of an insufficient happiness as the earthly paradise of an amusement park. Blinding spotlights, they weren't sparing with bright colours, showed up the ornate burden of false gold. Women and overfed children grew out of columns and balcony railings. Satiation and sensuality, a superabundance, the laughing aspects of life were on display. The men paid little attention to the flesh of the golden people because they were surrounded by a haze of dust and tobacco smoke. This transformation of the forecastle, derived at first from a world of languid intoxication and eyeless whores, soon followed laws of its own. The men gazed into a fresher transparency, a harder deception. The whole thing was as spacious as a field or a garden, and more real than a refracted ray of light. There was independent life in their mirrored images. All movement was voluntary. All action seemed to be determined by deep layers of buried desires or long-forgotten dreams. In the end, everyone was painfully distorted, infected with excrescences, overflowing with shortcomings, and filled with what was degenerate. You know, since you're talking about this kind of kernel of truth or something, why don't we think about the cargo a little bit? I was quite curious what you made of it, because obviously it seems like perhaps the most plainly symbolic part of the of the novel. Obviously, the the ship is sent on this unknown mission, carrying an unknown cargo, and no one seems to know what is inside these these boxes. And right at the beginning of the novel, the desire to find find out what's inside leads to a brawl amongst some of the sailors and so the whole crew is replaced. On second reading I realised the entire crew is replaced except the only characters of the crew that you then are confronted with by name. So the only members of the crew remaining from the original crew are the cook, the carpenter, Alfred Tutine, the, there's a mixed race sailor I think and that's it. Uh, and these are the only sailors that you that you meet, and they're the ones that that remain from the original crew, which I thought was quite interesting. Again, you know why why that is that they remain, or why that they you know they've gone through this, as you say, yeah, this brawl, and then this very strange weeding out of who might be worthy of serving on the ship by the supercargo. I hadn't actually noticed that it was uh, drawn along such specific lines. But yeah, obviously everyone is always thinking about what is inside these boxes. And over the course of the novel, we have all sorts of theories about what might be inside them. We have the idea that it's it's weapons, that the boxes themselves are coffins, that the ship is carrying a freight of young women for the delight of the crew. Yeah, a really strange moment, which I'll talk about in, in a minute. But, but just... I'm just curious what you made of the the cargo itself. Did you find that kind of evident symbolism there, Rob? Yeah, I think um, perhaps what what you were saying uh, before we started recording, that they're incredibly symbolic and they're they're certainly not just a plain cargo, but they're also a kind of empty signifier that they're there to be filled by whomever is on the crew, you know, their, their, their fears and their desires. It feels very symbolic in itself that when the crew think that they're prizing off the lids of the cargo, turns out to be a false cargo that's been laid as a trap for them, that the boxes are completely empty. They're just, uh, they feel incredibly heavy, but they turned out to be nailed to the floor. And that feels, yeah, symbolic in itself that actually what's in this cargo is inside the men and inside each of them. It actually has very little to do with these wooden boxes themselves, but it is absolutely necessary to have this externalised object that they can project onto what that then means for this mission or the um so obviously the whole point of of their sailing is to deliver this cargo whether that then means the entire journey is uh, allegorical or not is um is much, i think a bit more difficult to say it's even speculated at a moment by gustav that the the point is not to deliver the the cargo the boxes hold the murder victims of uh of the supercargo mm. or of someone and uh, uh, yes. the way of escaping 
escaping being captured is uh, is by sailing around with the evidence, which is one of the most outlandish ideas that comes up. I thought one of the most interesting parts of the novel, and it's a moment that's you know perhaps the most distinctly expressionist in the in the book. Jan is known as an expressionist writer. Um, is this moment when the crew becomes ex- inexplicably convinced that the ship's cargo has young girls or or prostitutes perhaps in the boxes and then as a kind of direct outward manifestation of this the ship we're told literally turns to glass and flesh and women and fattened children begin to grow out of the balcony railings and then we get this really long orgiastic passage yeah like you were saying i think this is one of those moments where the cargo seems to almost in one-to-one terms represent the preoccupations of whoever surrounds it Uh, we get this strange passage and jan writes the horrors which a human being carried under his skull were magnified a dozen times free from all control the men wallowed in shame each man in the shame he had set himself as a goal in life which was more important to him than every noble protestation Words were only the most transparent reflection of this dangerous enchantment. All talk was stifled in the overpowering aberration consuming the soul. What everyone was doing was urgent, unavoidable, beyond all self-preservation, was, in fact, his own future and the extinction of all promise. With unconcealed greed, they ate of the accursed treasure. This passage and and the whole moment where the, the ship erupts in this kind of bacchanalian orgy really made me think of freud i mean i know it's a bit of a faux pas to bring freud up oh i think i have on a few different episodes yeah (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if this occurred to you rob but i found it strikingly similar to the sort of underlying arguments of civilization and its discontents you know this idea that the suppression of of base desires like sexual desire or proclivity towards violence is necessary for groups to coexist but they are also necessarily manifested at times through outbursts that that kind of rupture the the facade of civilization and in in this in this moment it seems like this frustrated sexual desire has been kind of brewing up in the crew's minds and and then it it has to be released in this sort of orgy of we're told degenerate or heathenish delight and I think, yeah, similarly, finding the cargo or the boxes to be to be empty is also a kind of manifestation of Gustav's quest for meaning. Uh, the more he tries to to outline the ship, you know, he's actually trying to draw diagrams of the of the ship to to encompass it somehow. The more he does that, the more labyrinthine and meaningless his findings become. And so, I would argue that if if the cargo is symbolic or allegorical, perhaps is not a stable allegory it's a sort of fundamentally protean thing yes i don't i don't think we can definitely get a kind of one-to-one answer as to what it symbolizes the passage you mentioned this yeah incredibly expressionistic but is is so strange and it comes directly after the the passage on the storm and it seems like there's uh, such incredible tension as the the men believe that the ship might go down and they might all die that perhaps this is the point when coming out of that there has to be something to break that tension the thought that the girl would appear again as she had disappeared an enigma for those around her was the only unsubstantial hope Everything else led to heart-rending torture. Gustav tried to subdue his terror. It was his task to straighten out and stretch what was crooked until the intention of the god who had set these things in motion might become clear and he could adapt himself either as slave or rebel. Gustav thought of the pitiless assault on life, attacks on defenseless and unready man, Such a man was crushed or snuffed out because he stood in the way of the unfathomable avalanche of events. A man could not throw himself from the top of a high tower and arrive unharmed at the bottom. That was quite clear. The laws of gravity did not change because a treacherous stone got loose and a man was in danger of losing his footing. And so the fact of failing came in conflict with the aspirations of the soul. And there was no doubt about it, the powers of the soul were minimal, 
and of no importance when compared with the powerful machinery that attracted matter. A bullet may scorn one man and kill the other. Yeah, it really jumped out at me that the novel was mixing all these genres. You know, on the one hand we have, or we could think of it as an example of a maritime novel or a nautical fiction or, or something like that, along the lines of Joseph Conrad's The Shadow Line. Have you read that? No, I haven't. Uh, I have read a lot of Conrad, but not that. I picked that one particularly because it has, as this book does, a very distinctly allegorical character but i don't think it really captures the the oddness of the, of this book to describe it purely as as nautical fiction there are quite a few other elements i think worth, are worth mentioning so the mystery or detective fiction element of the book that we've we've obviously talked about a little bit but there's a very concrete sense in which gustav our protagonist becomes kind of detective figure in both in a sense of actually trying to find the whereabouts of his disappeared fiance elena and to find some concrete solution to what the contents of the cargo are and obviously those two things are kind of interconnected obviously the the thing that distinguishes it or makes it a kind of truncated uh, detective novel is that the solution is it's not given to us at all i don't know about you but i found myself expecting something i was expecting some <laughs> appearance of the the ship owner or something it feels so close within grasp at the end when they find this hidden passage and drop down into it to attempt to find either a body or, or the living elena narrative convention suggests that you're about to have a reveal and instead very different catastrophe awaits and i i I like that i didn't find that that disappointing or anything like that but yeah i've come across a few articles that that consider it to be or think of it in the terms of the detective novel um there's an article by jochen vogt uh called das vierdimensionale labyrinth Das Holzschiff, ein allegorischer Detektivroman. Yeah, the four-dimensional labyrinth, an allegorical detective novel, uh, which claims that this, the central mystery has a kind of distinctly existential character and, and speaks of this novel as a Schicksalsdrama, drama of fate. You know, and there are there are other articles as well that that think much more broadly than we have than, than we've been thinking about the allegory in in the book. There's another by Wilhelm Emrich, which states that we can see the ship as a mirror image of the cosmos, and that the ship's journey, according to a kind of ancient motif, clearly symbolizes the journey through life or or humanity's journey. And I think, yeah, although we're very we're very clearly in allegorical territory i don't find that there's much actually to be drawn personally from thinking of it in such grand terms other than a a, quite a simplistic message that there's nothing to be found by looking for the meaning of life or something like that you know yeah i would i would completely agree i think i think it does a bit of a disservice i mean if you explain to someone purely the outline of the book it's such a classic setup to have um, all your characters in this ship away from all the external input of the of the wider world to be able to create this microcosm to present that as this kind of like allegorical story it's you know it's which is part which is part of the oh yeah 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 no it's certainly it's certainly part of it but i don't i don't think that's the be all and end all that you know it's obviously extremely important that it is this kind of like closed system but i think to to have this kind of overarching reading of it does a disservice to the intricacies just the kind of weirdness of the of the book uh, i think it's it's beauty lies in actually quite how difficult or not difficult because that's the wrong word because it's actually very enjoyable but just the fact that it never feels like it's settling on one one thing or another i was actually going to say not just that it's part of this book but it is part of the almost the tradition of the maritime novel or nautical fiction to do that to think about the ship as a kind of microcosm i mean you only have to turn to melville's um Billy Budd, for example, defined, you know, a kind of recasting of the fall of man um, aboard a ship in that way. I don't know. I'd be interested to see what you think of this, how you think it might apply or if it does at all. But I was thinking uh, in allegorical terms that the ship of fools allegory might be kind of implicit here as well, originating with Plato, this this metaphor of the state. Have, have you come across that, Rob? Yeah, 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 yeah. While I didn't think of this um, as a 
as necessarily a political book. I think it almost intentionally distances itself from, from being thought of in those terms. The mutiny in the middle of the, the book kind of made me think of that as, as part of that Ship of Fools allegory. And obviously it has a kind of pedigree in German literature as well. There's this medieval satire, Das Narrenschiff, um, the Sebastian Brandt poem or series of poems. That's from 1494 and it was immensely popular. And I wondered if you could see anything in this novel that might be kind of political trope or thinking of the, the ship as the as a microcosm of the state even it's published directly after the uh, after the second world war and so purely for those reasons we might consider it uh, as related somehow did that come up in your mind at all yeah i mean i think there's certainly the the weird contrasting positions of valdemar trunk the the captain and then the supercargo who both have a certain control over the ship but are very much at odds and we, we learn very early on that there may be some kind of central control mechanism for the doors, and it's suggested that they you know, could have all sorts of other operations. And then we learn that the orders for the ship are being taken from yet another ship following behind. And it seems a very strange position for the captain to be in, to have no real control. And uh, yeah, the character of the supercargo, who we haven't really spoken about so much, and it's kind of difficult because we could almost do a whole I think we could almost do a whole episode on, on just talking about this one character, the supercargo it's very interesting. But yeah, this paranoia which actually seems to permeate right across the crew. Although weirdly, the only character that seems to not have this paranoia is Valdemar Strunk. And I don't know if that's because actually perhaps he's not properly constructed or fleshed out as a character. But even when his daughter goes missing, mm. he sort of just seems to not, not be that... You know, he's having dinner in the, in the staterooms. You know, the ship's not very... can't be that big... <laughs> Yeah, and his daughter's gone missing, and yeah, he sort of seems a bit impervious to this. He doesn't seem concerned at all, does he? Yeah, but I think he's—I think he seems to be a very sort of empty-headed character. Mm. The only thing he seems to be concerned with, really, is um, you know the societal conventions of not allowing his daughter before marriage to to sleep in the same bunk as yeah. uh, her fiance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also just kind of the guiding of the ship and the the maritime conventions and you know he's very much on the men's side and sort of saying okay this is this is how things are done. And then yeah, the supercargo is this extremely paranoid force who we learn is uh, listening in through special microphones throughout the ship has somehow access to to kind of like various methods for spying on um spying on crew members there certainly does seem to be a very uh, kind of like a political juxtaposition between the different types of state perhaps the extreme level of control and manipulation that the supercargo represents and then a slightly more traditional perhaps more fair-minded but then it's hard to tell but yeah certainly the the kind of the way that ship's captain treats his role on the ship. Yeah, I mean, we know that Jan was a, a critic of the the Nazis and German state, and that he he was a pacifist and so on. But I don't see any very direct parallels with with what what occurred in the in the Second World War, for instance. Here, if anything, I, I would see the ship owner as an almost like a god figure. The fact that he can see everyone, he can hear everything, but he can't be seen. And their search for him could almost be like a kind of search for God. So I'd, I would rather see it in spiritual terms rather than political terms. Yeah, so I think this book, it might not be a, a pleasurable experience for, for all readers, but for my own part, I've, I relish this feeling of being lost in a, in a novel, you know, being lost in this this novel's expansive seas but uh i would be careful about my recommendations so i'd recommend it to, to particular people i think but how about you bob is this something that you you'll be proselytizing about i think there's there's people that will enjoy it and others that that might not and i certainly wouldn't judge those that didn't <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> i think it, it certainly pays off in the end but yeah there's absolutely quite sort of like dense passages of very strange internal monologues which can be off-putting perhaps you know we've we've talked a little bit about the the strangeness of this book rob on a scale of one to <laughs> ten how many <laughs> how many shirts would you give this book <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> 
um, ah, it's a weird one, isn't it? Because it's um, it's strange on so many levels. It's strange in its structure. It's strange in its content. It's strange in its style. Yeah, it's it's definitely. Um, so hang on, is it more or less shirts for strange? The, the higher the higher the number of shirts, the stranger the book. <laughs> um, I'd probably I'd want to give it an eight. You know, I don't want to go right up there just in case we we end up reading something really off the wall, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's um, in terms of what we've read already. It's um, yeah, seven or an eight, I'd say seven and a half. We do that S- half a solid shirt. seven and a half shirts. Yeah, <laughs> that's respectable, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> do you like my introduction of this new segment? By the way, I just, I just yeah, came it's up. Great, with it. Yeah, I think purely for the the fact that language isn't really distorted in here at all. This is still readable, I think. Yeah, that actually, yeah, that's that's a really good point. I think it lowers it lowers the number of shirts I would give it. I'm going to give it six shirts. What do we do? Do we take an av- do we take an average before we put this up on the? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I guess I guess it gets six point seven five shirts altogether. <laughs> and can can then, can people listening in online can they also give it a shirt rating? I'd like that. I'd like to have. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean one at least. One review would be nice, but uh, <laughs> I'll take shared ratings if uh, <laughs> take shared ratings if they're coming. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Shared's podcast. If you have any questions or comments about our conversation, please write to us at sharedpodcast at gmail dot com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter, and if you like the show please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.